0: Chapter Seven of Our Army at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Army at the Front By Haywood Brune. Chapter 7. Speeding Up While the soldiers were still figuratively speaking in their own trenches and learning the several arts of getting out. The officers of the infantry camp were having some special instructions in instructing. Young captains and lieutenants were placed in command of companies of the Blue Devils, and told to put them through their paces, in French. It was, of course, a point of honor with the officers not to fall back into English, even in an emergency. One particularly nervous young man, who had ordered his French platoon to march to a cliff some distance away, forgot the word for halt or turn around as the disciplined blue devils eyes straight ahead marched firmly down upon their doom at the very edge while the american clinched his sticky palms and wondered what miracle would save him a helpful french officer called halt, and the american suddenly remembered that the word was the same in both languages an experience revoltingly frequent with americans in distress with their french But disasters such as this were not numerous. The officers worked excellently at French as well as soldiering, and little precious time was needed for them. Three battalions were at work at this first training, two American and one French. As these learned their lessons, they were put forward to the next ones, and new troops began at the beginning. This plan was thoroughly organized at the very beginning, so that the later enormous influx of troops did not disrupt it. And as the first Americans came nearer to the perfection they were after, they were put back to leaven the raw troops, as the French Blue Devils had done for the first of them. The plan further meant that after the first few weeks, what with beginners in the first division and newly arriving troops, the Vosges fields offered instruction at almost anything along the program on any given day. Over the whole camp, the aim of the French officers was to reproduce actual battle conditions as absolutely as possible and to eliminate within reason any advantage that surprise might give to the germans by the end of the first week in august the best scholars among the trench diggers and bombers were being shown how to clean out trenches with live grenades and the machine gunners and marksmen were getting good enough to be willing to bet their own money on their performances then came the battalion problems the proper use of grenades by men advancing in formations against a mythical enemy in entrenched positions. From the beginning, the American army refused to accept the theory that the war would never again get into the open. They trained in open warfare, and with a far greater zest, partly, of course, because it was the thing they knew already, though they found they had some things to unlearn. Then the war brought about a reorganization of American army units, and it was necessary for the officers to familiarize themselves with new conditions. The reorganization was ordered early in August and put into effect shortly afterward. The request from General Pershing that the administrative units of the infantry be altered to conform with European systems had in its favor the fact that it economized higher officers and regimental staffs, or at the same time that the divisions were made smaller, regiments were made larger. The new arrangement of the infantry called for a company of 250 enlisted men and six commissioned officers, instead of 100 men and three officers. Each company was then divided into four platoons, with a lieutenant in command. Each regiment was made up of three battalions of four companies each, supplemented by regimental headquarters and the supply- and machine gun organizations. This made it possible to have one colonel and three battalion commanders, officer 3,600 men, as against 2,000 of the old order. This army in the making was not called on to show itself in the mass till August 16th, just a month after its hard work had begun. Then Major General Siebert, field commander of the 1st Division and best-loved man in France, held a review of all the troops the maneuvers were held in a great open plain the marching was done to spirited bands who had to offset a driving rainstorm to keep the men perked up the physical exercise of the first month showed in the carriage of the men infinitely improved and they marched admirably in spite of the fact that their first training had been a specialization in technical trench warfare general made them a short address of undiluted praise, and they went back to work again. A few days later, the Army had its first intelligence drill, with the result that some erstwhile soldiers were told off to cook and tend mules. The test consisted in delivering oral messages. One message was, Major Blank sends his compliments to Captain Nameless and orders him to move L Company one-half mile to the east, and support K Company in the attack. The officer who gave the message then moved up the hill and prepared to receive it. The third man up came in panting excitement, full of earnest desire to do well. Captain, the major says that you're to move your men a mile to the east, he said, and attack K Company. He peeled the potatoes for supper. The gas tests came late in August. The officers, believing that fear of gas could not be excessive, had done some tall talking before the masks were given out, and in the first test, when the men were to enter a gas-filled chamber with their masks on, they had all been assured that one whiff would be fatal. The gas in the chamber was of the tear-compelling kind only temporarily harmful, even on exposure to it, but that was a secret. The men were drilled in putting their masks on till the worst of them could do it in from three to five seconds, both the French and the British masks were used, and the one much lighter but comparatively riskier than the other. Officers required the men to have their masks constantly within reach, and gas alarms used to be called at mealtimes, or whenever it seemed thoroughly inconvenient to have them. The soldiers were required to drop everything and down the cumbersome contrivances, no matter how well they knew that there wasn't any gas. There is no question that this thoroughness "'saved many lives when the men went into the trenches. "'When they masked and went into the gas chamber, "'the care they took with straps and buckles "'could not have been better. "'One or two of the men fainted from heat and nervousness, "'but nobody caught the temporary blindness "'that would have been their lot "'if the gas had not been held off. "'And after the first few entrants had returned, "'none the worse, the rest made a lark of it, "'and the whole experience stamped on their minds "'the uselessness of gas as a weapon.' if you're handy with the mask the first insistence on rifle use and marksmanship which general pershing was to stress later with all the eloquence he had was heard in late august the french said frankly they had neglected the power of the rifle and the americans were put to work to avoid the same mistake in the target shooting with rifles the americans got their first taste of supremacy they ceased being of for as long as they held their rifles and became respected and admired experts. The first English army, the old contemptibles, had all been expert rifle shots. And, after a period when rifle fire was almost entirely absent from the battlefields, tacticians began to recall this fact and the cost it had entailed upon the Germans. So the doughboys added rifle fire to their other jobs. About this time, the day of the doughboy was a pattern of compactness, though he called it a harsher name. It began in the training area at five o'clock in the morning. One regiment had a story that some of the farm lads used to beat the buglers up every day and wander about disconsolate, wondering why the morning was being wasted. This was probably fictional. As a rule, five o'clock came all too early. There was little opportunity to roll over and have another wink, for a roll call came at five-thirty and this was followed by brief setting-up exercises designed to give the men an ambition for breakfast at this meal french customs were not popular the poilu who begins his day with black coffee and a little bread was always amazed to see the american soldier engaged with griddle cakes and corned beef hash and such other substantial things as he could get at daybreak just after breakfast sick call was sounded It was up to the ailing man to report at that time as a sufferer or forever after hold his peace. While the sick were engaged in reporting themselves, the healthy men tidied up. Work proper began at seven. As a rule, bombing, machine gun, and automatic rifle fire practice came in the mornings. Time was called at eleven and the soldiers marched back to billets for the midday meal. Later, when the work piled up even more, The meals were prepared on the training grounds. Rifle and bayonet practice came in the afternoon. Four o'clock marked the end of the working day for all except captains and lieutenants, who never found any free time in waking hours. In fact, most of the excited youngsters, almost all under 30, let their problems perturb their dreams. The doughboys amused themselves with swims, walks, concerts, supper, and French children till nine o'clock, when they were always amiable toward going to bed. With September came the British to supplement the French, and after a little to go far toward replacing them, for the Blue Devils had still work to do on the Germans, and their vacation would not last too long. A fine and spectacular sham battle put a climax to the stay of the French, when, after artillery preparation, the Blue Devils took the newly made American trenches advancing under heavy barrage the three objectives were named mackinson von kluck and ludendorff the artillery turned everything it had into the slow-moving screen under which the chasers crept toward the foe all the watching doughboys had been instructed to put on their shrapnel helmets at the pitch of the battle some officers found their men using their helmets as good front seats for the show but fortunately there were no casualties words do not kill the departure of the blue devils was attended by a good deal of home-made ceremony and a universal deep regret a genuine liking had sprung up between the americans and their french preceptors and when they marched away from camp the soldiers flung over them what detachable trophies they had the strains of all their bands the unified good wishes of the whole first division and unnumbered promises to be a credit to their teachers when they got into the line. It was the bayonet which proved the first connecting link between the Americans and the British. American observers had decided after a few weeks that the bayonet was a peculiarly British weapon, and in consequence it was decided that for this phase of the training, the army should rely on the British rather than the French. The British general staff obligingly supplied the chief bayonet instructor of their army with a number of assisting sergeants, and the squad was sent down to camp. The British brought two important things in addition to expert bayoneting. They were, first, a familiar bluntness of criticism, which the Americans had rather missed with the polite French, and a competitive spirit stirred up wherever possible between rival units of the AEF. Their willingness to act their practice was another factor, though in that they did not excel the French, except in that they could impart it to the Americans. The British theory of bayonet work proved to be almost wholly offensive. They went at their instruction of it with undimmed fire. At the end of the first week, they gave a demonstration to some visiting officers. Three short trenches had been constructed in a little dip of land, and the spectators stood on the hill above them, on the opposite slope tin cans shone brightly hoisted on sticks ready gentlemen said the drill sergeant prepare for trench bayonet practice by half sections you are to take these three lines of trenches lay out every boche in the lot and then get to cover and fire six rounds at them air tin hats don't waste a shot gentlemen every bullet a boche now then ready over the top and give em right in the stomach Over the top they went, and did as they were told, but the excitement was not great enough to please the drill sergeant. He turned to the second section and put them through at a rounder pace. Then he took over some young officers who were being instructed to train later troops at cleaning out trenches. Sacks, representing Germans, were placed in a communicating trench. "'Now remember, gentlemen,' said the sergeant, "'there's a fritz in each one of them air cubbyholes.' And he's no dub, is Fritz. He's got ears all down his back. Make your feet pneumatic. For heaven's sake, don't sneeze, or his nibs will sling you a bomb like Winkin'. And there will be a nasty mess. Ready number one. Head down, bayonet up. It's no use stickin' out your neck to get a sight of Fritzy in his ole. Why, if old Fritz was there, he'd just down your point, and then where'd you be? Why, just a blinkin' casualty. And don't you forget it. Ready again, bayonet up. Now you see him. Quick, down with your point and at him. Tickle his gizzard, not so bad, but I bet you waked his nibs in the next ole. Keep in mind, you're fighting for your life. By the time the officers were into the trench, the excitement was terrific. It was such measures as these that made the bayonet work go like lightning and cut down the time required at it by more than one half. The organized recreation and the competitions, two sturdy British expedients for morale, always came after these grimmest of all war's practices. The more foolish the game, the more rapturously the British joined in it. Red Rover and Prisoner's Base were two prime favorites. A British major said the British Army had discovered that when the men came out of the trenches, fagged and horror-struck, the surest way to bring them back was to set them hard at playing some game remembered from their childhood. The British had even harder work at first to make the men fall in with the games than they had with war practice. But the friendly spirit existing basically between English and Americans, however spatty their exterior relationships may sometimes be, finally got everybody in together the americans found that a british instructor would as lief call them rotten if he thought they deserved it but that he did it so simply and inoffensively that it was on the whole very welcome so the americans learned all they could from french and british and began the scheme of turning back on themselves and doing their own instructing the infantry camp was destined to have some offshoots as the number of men grew larger and the specialists required intensive work Officer schools sprang up all over France, and all the supplemental forces which had infantry training at first scattered off to their special training, notably the men trained to throw gas and liquid fire. But for the most part, the camp in the Vosges remained the big central mill it was designed to be, and in late October, when three battalions put on their finishing touches in the very battle line, the cycle was complete. Before the time when General Pershing offered the expeditionary force to Generalissimo Foch to put where he chose, the giant treadway from sea to camp and from camp to battle was grinding in monster rhythms. It never thereafter feared any influx of its raw material. End of chapter 7